uh, intrigued. I'm very intrigued by these two. Um, I, yeah, you know what? I'll just read them and let you come. I, I don't know what the hell I'm saying, guys. I'm just fucking, t- I'm tired for once <laughs> recording this show. All you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 181 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would happen to be the micro RNA precursor episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that there just happens to be a micro RNA precursor, which is a small non coding RNA molecule, you know, part of that whole DNA thing, and it is called MIR. 181 mir hyphen 181 and with that little bit of rna knowledge i of course am matt and coming to us exhausted from a cure concert not just a cure but the cure concert as it were would be our resident sony employee tim and holy crap do they know how to put on a good show saw them over at the hollywood bowl and they played like 30 some on 38 songs and it lasted a good three hours or so and it was crazy have you ever seen them in concert i have not and, and unfortunately uh things have been a little tight lately and i didn't get to see them when they were in town just last week my brother-in-law and my niece did though so that's nice my only question is uh you know were you like doing any like crazy stuff after or were you just so exhausted that you came home and went straight to bed like w- w- heroin I mean, you know or... the cure has such a range of amazing music and such a huge catalog as exemplified by the fact that they had a three plus hour concert doing 38 songs that you know the emotional roller coaster must have been you know just holy crap so you know we're were you <laughs> anything like you know, were you anything like that, right? Well, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But when when you are seeing a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, you only have a short amount of time to sit down and collect your thoughts and reminisce about the show that you just saw until you are forced into the cattle line that is the traffic leaving the Hollywood Bowl. And having to make your way through Hollywood to get to your car, which is about a mile and a half away. And that takes a lot of planning and focus itself. But once you're in that car, you realize, well, shit, I still have to drive across town to get out, you know. And then you really don't start reflecting and realize the amazingness that you just witnessed until Tuesday morning. So in other words, you could not stay in bed on Tuesday or Wednesday. After holding your head on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) But guess who I'm seeing tomorrow night to cap off this week of once-in-a-lifetime concert goingness? Lay it on me, brother. Guess who? The Who? The Who Hits 50 Tour at the Staples Center. That's right. I won't be fooled again. 
Wow. So you are, you know, this is why I always say, you, you know, you, you two crazy, crazy kids out there, you know, I get to live vicariously through y'all. So that's right. That's awesome. And all you other guys out there that listen to the show, you're not going to probably be able to hear this show until Friday, maybe. Well, it's got to be Friday. Normal. That's, it's kind of been lately to, to release the show on Friday. So, yeah, you know. That sounds about right. Here we are. I mean, for the record, though, because of The Cure, we're actually recording on a Tuesday, uh, the 24th, when normally we record on Mondays, uh, as has been the habit. But due to the concert and, of course, the holiday next week, we won't be recording. Well, yeah, this week and next week we're recording on Tuesday. So, fun times. Well, at any rate, I had a pretty uneventful week. So, yeah. Although I have my big, I have another big block party coming up, and uh, on Sunday, and then hopefully on Monday we'll be going off to St. Arnold for beer. What a very American neighborhood you live in! Block parties. <laughs> Who has block parties anymore? Like it's crazy. It's awesome, but it's crazy. It's unheard of. What? I think there, there, it's like a double meaning in that. There, there's really something else happening there. I think really your neighborhood is is harvesting some illegal drug or some uh, illegal smuggling of some sort. I think your neighborhood is the heart of the child trafficking in Houston. Well, see, I, I guess you figured me out. Yes, this is the actual core of the chemtrail operation that people are worried about. The tinfoil hat club. That's, that's, yeah. And so our block parties are the cover-up. This is where we meet and disseminate our information and the latest batch of chemicals and all that good stuff. Fun. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Suburbia. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see. Due to our time constraints this week and everything, I it, it, it worked out in this regard. We don't have any uh, email or Twitter followers to mention this week so uh just real quickly you can of course follow us on twitter at the sls cast and you can always send us an email to the show at slscast.com uh but um yeah i don't have any news of the weird or anything do you have any news of the weird or anything sure don't all right well how about we get to the real news sounds good is this gonna be like news part one and news part two like last week or is it just gonna be the news this time I'm confused. What happened last week? Oh, <laughs> Ooh, yes, a little you rascal, you yes. a little callback to Tim's fuck up from last week. <laughs> what you said it was on purpose? Did I? I didn't. I never said it was on purpose. So okay, so yes, yes, you did. I I, I edited it. I edited it, and I was yeah, doing. I was listening totally on purpose. Winky smile. Oh well, no, I meant that to, just to tease you a little bit. <laughs> But, yeah, so I used two of the same segment intros for somehow. I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully it'll work this time. I still won't check <laughs> awesome. it until somebody else lets me know that there's an issue. That's all right. It's all good, man. Uh, all right. Well, then, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> So, first up from me, we have from <clears throat> RandallOlson.com. What a weird name. How do you spell that? <clears throat> Olson. 
Yes, Randall. Well, it's interesting because it's Randall S. Olson, but the S is pronounced. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> RandallOlson.com by way of Randy Olson, even. It says here. Movies aren't actually much longer than they used to be. Now, this article in particular is dated because it actually comes from 2014. But the infographic starts from literally the 1930s and goes all the way up to 2014. And it is kind of interesting to show. I, I do highly recommend you check this particular article out because what I, all I want to get through from this is that basically since about 1960... The median length of movies has been about 118 minutes, give or take. Four or five minutes, just depending on the year. Like, in the mid-80s, we hit a glut of, like, 110-minute movies on the average. So, people are thinking, wow, you know, movies are they're two hours long. They're all these two-hour epic movies. But when you consider all everything on the whole... Movies overall have not really been any longer um, than they have been for about 50 years now, which is pretty interesting. And have you felt that at all, Tim, that maybe movies are longer or shorter than they used to be? Or do you think they're pretty much about the same length all the time? You know, if anything, I'd say movies were shorter as a whole. I mean, because we're looking at movies back in the day when you'd have these more, there were more epics and more bigger budget films made by studios which would require intermissions and whatnot and yeah we have longer movies but if you think about it it's not like it's not consistently that many every single year i mean i think this year it was is it this year or last year i, for, I forget it took the record of having the the most longer or hang on it had the most longest movies than any other movie that came out within the past decade or two so I don't know, it's interesting. Yeah. And the infographic itself was created by taking um, IMDb's 25 most popular movies from each year of 1931 through 2013 for this particular infographic and laying laying them out there. So it's pretty cool. Uh, again, uh, the article, like I said, is from 2014. But still, um, if you want to see kind of the ebb and flow of movies, of popular film and everything for 80 years, please head over here and check it out. Uh, I've got one more quick thing here I want to bring up from Polygon.com. And what better place than Polygon.com to talk about this? This comes to us by way of Allegra Frank. Tetris movie adaptation secures $80 million budget and starts shooting next year. The byline here is you can't just shift all those tiles around for free. Um, <clears throat> now, I know that Tim had talked about AT, uh, AT, God, Atari movies either last year or the year before. Last Jesus Christ, it's so late. Uh, last week or the week before. God. Uh, but I thought this was just a new level of ridiculousness in terms of bringing a video game to the screen. It says here, though, that a film based on the classic Game Boy game Tetris will be shooting in China next year, according to Deadline, a co-production between China and the U.S. The film will star both Chinese and Western actors actors funding and a storyline are already in place for tetris which is reportedly planned as the first of a trilogy 
<laughs> the film is budgeted at $80 million, Deadline said, and will be the debut project from Threshold Global Studios. Um, just as a info piece here, Tetris first launched in Russia on Electronica 60 in 1984. The game attained popularity when it first was packed in with the Game Boy in 1989. And... It is important to remember, although I don't know how many people don't know this, that the worldwide phenomenon is decidedly not sci-fi, but instead a simple and addictive puzzle game. Um, so, Tim, questions, comments, concerns about the $80 million being flushed down the drain on a Tetris movie? Hmm. I, I give up. <laughs> I, I give up. I don't know. It's going to happen regardless. So, uh, yes. And this particular article was much more recent, clocking in at May seventeenth, twenty sixteen, for the record. All right. Well, uh, you go ahead and take over, sir. What do you got for us? All right. I'm going to start off with two pieces of news. The first one being a little sad here. A passing via Deadline.com. This one here is written by Ali Jafar. Bert Kwok, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his last name, K-W-O-U-K, Bert Kwok dies. He's the actor who played Kato in seven Pink Panther movies, or should I say, Kato? Bert Kwok, the veteran actor most closely associated with the role of the long-suffering Kato in the Pink Panther series opposite Peter Sellers, has died at age 85. A statement released by the actor's family confirmed Kwok passed away peacefully on May 24th. Kwok was born in Warrington in the UK, but lived in Shanghai until he was 17. His long career took in seven Pink Panther films, three James Bond films, as well as appearances in Doctor Who and The Avengers. Kwok's big break came in 64 when he was cast as Inspector Clouseau's manservant, Kato, in A Shot in the Dark, the second in the Pink Panther series that followed the mishaps of Sellers's bumbling French police officer. The relationship between Clouseau and Kato, something of a hate-hate dynamic with a healthy sprinkling of kung fu designed to keep the police officer vigilant, soon became a staple of the franchise and popular with audiences. Kwok continued in the role following Sellers' death in 1980. Uh, and it goes on to talk about his other roles, uh, including Goldfinger and In, You Only Live Twice, as well as the spoof, Casino Royale. R.I.P. Burt Kwok. I gotta say, the best part of the Pink Panther movies, uh, especially after A Shot in the Dark, when they start getting a little just hokey, fun hokey, I should say, are the scenes that include Kato keeping Clouseau vigilant. You know, he'll pop out of anywhere, and it's great comedy, especially how it was shot, where Clouseau will walk into his apartment, and Kato, and he just walks around. He knows Kato is going to pop out of anywhere, and it, the scene goes on for like a good minute, minute and a half, until somehow he pops in to try to attack Clouseau in, in some way or another. And it's just very inventive and very funny and incredibly memorable, and... He is probably the second most memorable part of all the Pink Panther movies. So, R.I.P. again, Bert Kwok, who passed away. Next up for me, Andy Serkis via Vulture.com. 
Cans, Andy Circus says his Jungle Book will be scary and quite dark. This is written by Jetta Yuan, and this actually came out on May 16th, so a little bit older here. But since we did go see and review the Jungle Book movie, I think it is fair to warn you what you are getting yourself into if you do choose to go and see the next Andy Circus film, which will actually be Jungle Book. And it says this, When John Favreau's The Jungle Book came out earlier this year and won glowing reviews and staggering box office receipts, many wondered what the point was of Andy Serkis directing his own version of the Rudyard Kipling book for Warner Brothers. Yes, it's got a great cast including Kate Blanchett and Benedict Cumberbatch, and Planet of the Apes veteran Serkis is a motion capture pioneer. But what can it bring to the table that Favreau's didn't already? We put that question to Circus at the Vanity Fair Choppered Party, held in honor of the Cannes Film Festival, and he says this, quote, Ours is for a slightly older audience, end quote, Circus noted, though it will blend live action and computer graphics in a similar fashion. Quote, it's a PG-13, more a kind of apes movie, a slightly darker take, closer to Rudyard Kipling's, end quote. Circus said that, Movies these days are too cautious when it comes to children. Quote, which is wrong, said Circus. It's great to scare kids in a safe environment because it's an important part of the development. And we all love to be scared as kids, so we shouldn't overly protect them, end quote. Quote, kids are so sophisticated, and that is why our Jungle Book is quite dark. It's a story of an outsider, someone who is trying to accept the laws and customs of a particular way of living and then has to adapt to another culture, a human culture, which, of course, he should be able to adapt to because this is what he is. So it's about two different species and their laws and customs, and neither are entirely right. End all quotes there. And I gotta say, I am much more looking forward to... Circus's Jungle Book than I was to John Favreau's Disney Jungle Book adaptation. I think this will be much more entertaining. In you know, I, I I think personally, what do you think, Matt? Do you think darker and edgier is a better way to go for the story, uh, or or to better represent Kipling's Jungle Book? Well, I think that it's definitely something that will be interesting. Not even so much because just because it's oh it's more faithful to the Kipling version or what have you. As much as it is interesting, it will be interesting to see such a unique take when virtually everyone has only ever really been exposed to Disney's version. Right. Now, because there's versions. But uh, so whether or not it really needs to be... uh, extra scary or extra edgy or anything like that. Eh, I don't know. But clearly that's the direction that they've chosen to go. And I, I for one, will go and see it. So there you go. (laughs) For whatever that's worth. Uh, Something that I was um, advised of on Saturday in my suddenly sud Saturday session with Miranda Janelle and the kitty. Um... I, I, I called it spontaneous Suds Saturday, but I feel like suddenly Suds Saturday is a better way to do that. Anyways, so we were we were talking about a whole bunch of uh, shit, and I was progressively going through beer after beer, and the MMK team let me know 
did you hear that they've dropped the lawsuit on Axnar? And I was like, what? So that's right, folks. ScreenRant.com by way of Ben Kendrick. Paramount dropping lawsuit against Star Trek Axanar fan film. 50 years and counting since Star Trek first debuted on television screens and the franchise that dared viewers to, quote, boldly go where no man has gone before, end quote, is still going strong. While the property has weathered its share of stumbles, five decades of Star Trek have produced more than ten big screen film adaptations, as well as six television series, not to mention countless novels, comic books, audio dramas, and video games. However, much like its sister-slash-competitor science fiction series Star Wars, Star Trek success and longevity is owed to an extremely dedicated fan base. No doubt, plenty of talented TV and movie producers have aided in Star Trek's endurance, but Trekkies, or Trekkers, depending on how you like to use that term, have kept the series afloat during the numerous periods in between official projects. So much that rights holders, Paramount Pictures and CBS, have often encouraged fans to develop their own corners of the Star Trek universe. This, quote, open source, end quote, approach to fan-created Star Trek content was status quo until the aforementioned rights holders drew a line in the sand and filed a lawsuit against the creator of the high-profile Star Trek fan film, Axanar. Alec Peters in an attempt to stop his project from being made. Now, nearly six months after the case was first filed, Star Trek fan, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Star Trek film producer J.J. Abrams has revealed that Paramount Pictures and CBS will be abandoning the lawsuit. Now, that's not to say that J.J. Abrams isn't a fan, but I was just misreading that there. Um, basically, um, he was at a Star Trek fan event and then just you know, kind of announced that, um, they were going to be dropping it. And, and the only thing he is quoted in the article here is saying, quote, this wasn't an, uh, an appropriate way to deal with the fans, end quote. And basically what happened is behind the scenes, Justin Lin convinced Paramount to drop the lawsuit it just was not in their best interest with this big huge movie coming out that they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on to alienate the fan base and potentially generate a boycott so and of course cbs paramount is planning on doing a new series at the beginning of next year and they basically came to their senses. Now, from what I understand, though, the article does go on, uh, and I would encourage you, if you have not already, to finish reading that. But basically, uh, they've dropped the lawsuit, but ostensibly they are now involved in the production. Now, whether or not that's to be back-end money or anything like that, I don't know. Uh, that's all the hush-hush part of the settlement, but or the dropping of the lawsuit. But basically, Paramount CBS now have their claws in this project. And I don't think that that's actually going to be for the worse. If anything, I really think it's for the, it's for the best because now that there's cooperation and talking, there will be much easier avenues to be able to pull all the cool stuff they're going to do in Axanar and let that feed into anything that they've got going on in their television production side or any future Star Trek films. Um, I am super stoked by this. Super, 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 super stoked. Um, and glad that someone was able to talk these people into returning and regaining their senses. Tim! 
questions, comments. What do you think? Are you excited? Do you care? Do you like yay or yeah no it's awesome i mean you definitely don't want to piss off your fan base and star trek fans trekkies are loyal to what they love and that's great and it's also nice hearing justin lynn being such a big fan where he's the one that kind of helped the studio come to their senses by the way did you see the new or did you watch the new star trek trailer absolutely not okay i will say this <laughs> i i enjoy it's i enjoyed it and i am now very much looking forward to the movie. That is what I am hearing. Um, my one of my really good, uh, one of my best friends, Rob, asked me the same question at work tonight. He's like, "Did you see the new trailer?" And I'm like, "Nope, I refuse to watch any more of the trailers." I see. I had to. I, I had to watch it. Did you have you seen the new Ghostbusters trailer? I, I caved and watched that one, and I agree with your one word sentiment on Facebook that you posted last week. That, you know, where you just said better <laughs> dot, dot, uh, <laughs> now okay now i will say in defense of that new trailer because um and we'll get to this later i do want to talk about i think this uh, but uh this should have been the first trailer this new trailer should have been what was done the first time and i don't know what the f- i still have no idea what the fuck possessed these people to make the other trailer um, it's not that it redeems the movie, but it does put the movie in a watchable light. It's one of those where if you had not ever seen the first trailer, you would have been like, eh, it looks all right. It doesn't look great, but it doesn't look terrible. Whereas the first trailer left such a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth because it really did make the movie look like shit. With Star Trek Beyond... I knew, I knew based on all of the stuff that I had been following in the, in the production and everything like that, that while it was the equivalent of the original Ghostbusters trailer, um, for the Star Trek version, I was just as done. Uh, I'm still gonna see, I was still gonna see the movie because, you know, of our show and all that kind of stuff. But on the same token, I was like, you know what? I have faith that this is not what the movie's gonna look like. But that's because I have something to fall back on. I have two previous movies to fall back on and the knowledge of the actors and the people behind the production and everything like that. When it came to that Ghostbusters trailer and I saw that first Ghostbusters trailer, I was just as done, but not with any hope of it being any better because there was nothing to fall back on. Um, so... That's and and so I'm just I just don't want to see any more of the movie. I want to be surprised. I want to be, um, I want to be entertained. So I'm not going to watch any. I'm not going to go out of my way to watch any more Star Trek trailers. I am sure that in one of my visits to the movie theaters in the next month or so, it's going to be forced upon me, and I'll probably watch it then. Anyway. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to do two more pieces of news. Uh, the first, I, I'm actually pretty uh, intrigued. I'm very intrigued by these two. Um, I, yeah, you know what? I'll just read them and let you come. I, I don't know what the hell I'm saying, guys. I'm just fucking. T- I'm tired for once <laughs> recording the show via EntertainmentWeekly.com. EW.com, or as I like to call it, you 
Com. John Carpenter to executive produce new Halloween movie. Yes, that's right. You might have heard this news already. You probably heard people saying, oh, John Carpenter is making the new Halloween movie. And that is not the case. He is executive producing it, not directing it. Uh, This article is written by Clark Collins, and it says this, Legendary master of horror, John Carpenter will executive produce a new movie in the Halloween series. Carpenter began the franchise with his classic, Jamie Lee Curtis, starring 1979 slasher film Halloween about a mass killer named Michael Myers. Miramax and Bloomhouse Productions are co-financing development and production of the project. Longtime series producer Malik Akkad, whose father Mustafa produced the original film, will oversee the project under his Trances International Films banner. The new movie will be the first Halloween movie since 2009's Halloween 2, director Rob Zombie's sequel to his 2007 remake. Quote, 38 years after the original Halloween, I'm going to help to try to make the 10th sequel the scariest of them all, end quote, said Carpenter in a statement. Quote, Halloween is one of those milestone films that inspired everyone at our company to get into the world of scary movies, end quote, said Bloomhouse chief Jason Bloom. Quote, the great Malika Khan and John Carpenter have a special place in the hearts of all genre fans, and we are so excited that Miramax brought us together. We cannot wait to find and collaborate with the right filmmaker to give Halloween fans the movie they deserve. End all quotes there, and the article does go on. Matt, what do you what do you what do you think? Do you think this is pretty cool? I know you were a fan of the first two Halloween movies. I think the at least the two thousand seven and two thousand nine remake and sequel. Were you? I think. Am I making that up? Well, no, no. Um, Halloween the the Halloween remake. Um, I was really impressed with the Halloween sequel that from the new it was okay um no i think it's great um i i the only thing i worry about is that it's just going to be name recognition and it's not that i don't have faith in him and it's not that i don't have uh faith that they can't pull it off or anything like that it's just that i think we run the risk of setting our sights too high um and only time is going to tell so i think it's really cool but i am will remain cautiously optimistic yeah i agree with you i mean that's what they did with wes craven for the scream tv series he had nothing to do with it they just mtv just pretty much bought the rights to use his name to promote the show so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping since John Carpenter is still with us and he is still fucking creative. I mean, he's still I mean, he's putting out albums now and doing concerts and stuff. And I know he still has has his same old shit in him. Wait. <laughs> that sounds like one constipated motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he still has that spark in him and that creativity, I think. So. I hope it's not a, a direct remake. I hope it's not another spinoff. I just hope it's a sequel that is its own thing in some way or another. So good luck to them. Uh, my next piece of news is brought to us by PasteMagazine.com, written by Allison Lynn. This here, I think, is absolutely fascinating, but I question whether or not if this is right. 
Carrie Fukunaga and Steven Spielberg to undertake Stanley Kubrick's unfinished Napoleon. Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon, a yet unfinished, sprawling biographical film about the eponymous French emperor, will finally be seen to completion in the form of an HBO miniseries directed by Kerry Fukunaga and produced by Steven Spielberg. The film, dubbed, quote, the greatest movie never made, end quote, was once the lifelong passion of the iconic director who died before the film ever reached fruition. The script has lain dormant until it was picked up by Fukunaga and Spielberg earlier this year. Kubrick's family and estate, who will also have a hand in the culmination of the project, have recently given HBO access to all the late director's archives. Napoleon was never completed because of Kubrick's occasionally overwhelming vision. The Eyes Wide Shut director reportedly traveled to Europe, collecting close to 20,000 of Napoleon's artifacts and planned to utilize 30,000 members of the Romanian army for battle scenes in the film. The movie's broad scope, which sought to give a comprehensive overview of, Nap- of Napoleon's efforts to unify all of Europe under his rule in the 1800s, also contributed to obscene production costs that hindered the film's release. Though Napoleon will undoubtedly prove to be a daunting task to complete, it's in good hands. Kerry Fukunaga established himself as an accomplished director at the helm of the celebrated first season of the HBO series True Detective and Netflix's critically acclaimed Beasts of No Nation. Spielberg, meanwhile, is a name almost synonymous with success in the film industry with legendary titles like Jaws, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List, as if nobody knows who the fuck Spielberg is. So, end all quotes there. The article goes on for a little bit more. I think this is interesting because Kubrick's unfinished Napoleon movie, the reason why it's not unfinished or was unfinished was because of the scope of it. Yes, it's not going to be a movie and it's going to be an episodic miniseries or, you know, however long it'll be. And I think that'll work, but I wonder how much of that will still encapsulate Kubrick's vision. I mean, his movie would have been three, four hours long or, you know, something like that. And it would have been his vision. It would have been his big stunts going into the movie with his large extra work and whatnot. Now, will they bring that unique vision to the miniseries? That's what I want to know, and I think that will be important as to whether or not we should look at it as... Kubrick's unfinished Napoleon movie, or if it's just Fukunaga and Spielberg's movie, and they're just taking over maybe his script. It's the vision I want to know about. Are they looking at are they looking at it through are they looking at the script through Kubrick's eyes or through his vision or their own? And they're just gonna make something that they you know, that sort of kind of resembles what Kubrick want. I don't know, Uh, but I do think it's interesting, mainly because we haven't really seen a movie about Napoleon in ages, and Napoleon as a character, I think, personally, is absolutely fascinating. What do you think? Comments, questions, concerns about this? Do you think this is a good idea? Do you agree that this being a miniseries would have been the best route to take? I don't know that Kubrick would have done a miniseries back then anyway, so I guess in it's more or less neither here nor there. But I do agree with your concerns, though, that it'll be so overshadowed by Spielberg and company that it'll just be Kubrick in name. And and I think maybe that should be the idea. Maybe it should be, you know, based on um, 
maybe they should have that as as a key part of the credits, you know, based on Stanley Kubrick's original production, so that we you know we can see that it was based on, but that it is not representative of. And I think that would help. So, and to be fair, Kubrick did come up with the story of. AI, artificial intelligence. Him and Spielberg came up with the story, and I believe Kubrick made an outline of it. And I haven't read the outline. I, I mean, I haven't, I don't, I haven't read any of Kubrick's notes on AI. But I, I mean, AI is a Steven Spielberg movie that doesn't quite feel like a Steven Spielberg movie because Kubrick is all over that movie. So I'm hoping they'll take that route in a way. All right. Well. This is going to be it from me. I've got a uh, two-piece thing here. A little bit light from TheGuardian.com by way of Bonnie Malkin. It's Bond. Jane Bond. Gillian Anderson throws hat into the ring to be next, 007. Yes, basically Gillian Anderson found a uh, fan-made poster of her online and then made a tweet. And it's a pretty cool-looking poster, I have to say. And she says, it's Bond. Jane Bond, thanks for all the votes. And sorry, don't know who made po- who made poster, but I love it. Hashtag next Bond. Well, while she did this more or less in fun, it turns out that after 25,000 plus favorites and almost nearly 13,000 retweets that it kind of generated its own weather, as it were, online. And now tons and tons of people on Twitter and other social media outlets are just like, holy shit, yes, make her the next. Well, okay, I'm still banking on uh, Tom Hiddleston um, unless we get the surprise casting of Idris Elba uh, out of this thing. But I thought it was kind of interesting just to note that uh, at least for a moment, we can say that um, the public would seriously consider Gillian Anderson as the first female Bond. Uh, and this is going, and then from here, we're going to close out with news. There are two different stories here that I'm going to be referencing. Uh, one from deathandtaxesmag.com by way of Maggie Serota. Uh, and another, which is from thedailydot.com by way of Miles Clee. And these are both regarding James Rolfe. Now, James Rolfe, you may or may not know this name, but for people like me who love classic gaming, he goes by his more famous moniker of the Angry Video Game Nerd. And he has, and while that's definitely his most famous persona, he has definitely been in movies and wanting to do movies and stuff for his entire life. That's where he got his degree in film and everything. He's made short films before he actually, with the... Angry Video Game Nerd moniker. He actually made a full-length feature film. And um, so, I mean, he's got a little bit of street cred in the film world, even though he's primarily known for the video game stuff. Um, and he came out, and it's a six-minute video on YouTube. You can definitely look it up. It's real simple. Uh, and, of course, he, but his website is called Cinemassacre.com, so that's where it did and basically it's just called ghostbusters 2016 no review i refuse and he goes over he has a litany of reasons why he's not going to do it chief of which would be the trailer which just looked terrible for him and he also things like he he enjoys the original franchise um and even though there are a lot of people out there who kind of trashed the second ghostbusters film um there are still quite a few people who did enjoy that movie 
and I am certainly one of the people who love the movie for what it is, even though I understand it's not the better of the two movies. So there's that. And yet people are literally attacking him. And both of these people, um, again, from the Daily Dot and from Death and Taxes Mag, are really, dis- <laughs> despite headlines of heroic angry nerd refuses to review new ghostbusters movie and brave not sexist movie critic refuses to watch the new ghostbusters um they are both both of these um articles are extremely snide and basically just lambasting rolf for basing his opinion not just in the fact that the trailer was bad but also because of all of the different things that went into getting this new movie for him it's just not worth it and so he took uh not because of me but basically when we had talked about this uh i guess about a month ago now and i had said that you know and i read that big long litany you know of an article that i had written on reddit about the 2016 ghostbusters And the very last line that I wrote was, sadly, until people start voting with their wallets, this is never going to stop. And that's the, that is the heart of why he has decided to not see the movie. He is putting his proverbial money where his literal mouth is. He's not going to pay to see this movie. And he's got, not only does he have every right to to do that, but, um, He's got a legitimate point. People are now, because of just the overwhelming press that this movie has gotten, it's, you know, now it's going to easily clear a hundred million dollars, if not two hundred million dollars, because so many people are going to go see this movie just to see if it's as bad as it's really supposed to be, that they're probably at least going to come pretty close to breaking even. And that means in 10 more years, they're going to look back and go, hey, well, the last one made $200 million. We should probably make another one. And then we get the shit again. And so, I don't know. I just really think that it's kind of shitty that this guy who is, who's made reasoned arguments is getting lambasted on, is getting lambasted in the media. Um, what do you think, Tim? Uh, again, both of these articles, please feel free to read. They're not very long, uh, but they uh, both achieve the same thing. From deathandtaxesmag.com by way of Maggie Sirota, Heroic Angry Nerd Refuses to Review New Ghostbusters Movie, and dailydot.com by way of Miles Klee, Brave Not Sexist Movie Critic Refuses to Watch the New Ghostbusters. Um, again, both of these um, op-ed pieces are actually very snide and backhandedly rude in treating Rolf, but... Um, I don't know. I, I feel like he's got a point, and maybe it's just because, you know, I've watched, I've watched this guy for years, and so you know, and I think he's got. I don't know him as a person. I don't hold him in any higher esteem as any other human being is just being a human being. Are but, you he? Are you secretly I, I, him? Oh God! If I even, you know, I if I could drop about four hundred pounds, I would look a little bit more like him, and then that would be decent. I could live with that. But what do you think, Tim? I mean, do you think that people who actually take a stand, who have any kind of legitimate internet following or otherwise, should be lambasted just because? 
Now, I did watch the video, and personally, I do think he was being a bitchy little nerd for a nice little chunk of the video, you know, of his ranting. But he does make a good point, and no, he, nobody should be criticized for not wanting to go see a movie and putting your mouth or putting your money where it, you know, or, or putting your or uh, proverbial money where your literal mouth is. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do it. I mean, we, you and I have done it on the show. I mean, there have been times where I told you I am not going to pay money to go see a fucking Kevin Hart movie, and by God, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> sure and i guess i i don't know maybe that's maybe i'm just more used to the way to to his presentation style right because i am not getting the whiny bitch aspect of this so maybe that's my personal you know fanboy-esque yeah well, I, well no, no, i shouldn't call him a bitch i i should just say maybe bitchy he's bitching there you go bitching i i know where you're coming from and he is right what i mean what's the worst that'll happen well the worst that could happen is that you pay 15 bucks to go see in 3D or whatever, and the movie is god-awful. Well, what's the slightly less worse thing that could happen? You go and see it, and you walk out of the movie theater going, eh, I should have saw it in 2D. Well, what's the next less worse thing that could happen? Well, you leave the movie after seeing it in 2D and going, well, it didn't suck that bad, or there were a couple <laughs> funny bits, and then it just kind of goes up from there. And so then, then you get to the point to where it's like, well, what does it do to... Like, does it tarnish your love of Ghostbusters? Does it ruin the original movies? And if so, then there is no point to it. If you don't want to risk it, then why why jeopardize it if it's going to bother you that much? Fair enough. So, yeah. I guess we're done with the news, and uh, we can move on to uh, Three Squared now, can we not? No, it's not Three Squared. It's I'm the only one who liked it, isn't it? Yeah, well, you almost had me there. I was about to say, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> All right, oh, oh, here we go, folks. It's I'm the only one who liked it. Who is the one that liked this movie? Not me. Who is the one that wants to watch again? Oh, you? Who is the one that wants to watch the movie? That was stupid. I'm the only one that liked it. That's me, folks, watching the movie. Oh man, I like that movie and nobody else did. Alright, and this time on I'm the Only One Who Liked It, we are going to be talking about, well at least I am, I don't know what Tim's going to talk about, but I'm going to be talking about a 1988 sequel that was universally panned, it currently holds a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and it made um, less. It made less than twenty percent of the film's uh, originator, and that film is Arthur Two on the Rocks. That's right, the sequel to one of the best comedies ever, one of the best comedies of the eighties, and. A comedy that also produced the best, the Academy Award winning best that you can do song, right? Oh, God, it's so good. <sighs> anyway, this movie picks up about seven years after the original movie. And, of course, we still have Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli together. And they've been married, and they're happy, but Arthur is still a drunk. They're having trouble conceiving, and now they've decided that they want to adopt. And yet, 
um, Arthur's would-be father-in-law, at least he would have been had his daughter not been jilted by Arthur at the altar in the first movie, has figured out a way to connive Arthur's $750 million fortune away from him. And so now Arthur, who has spent his entire life being a pampered alcoholic millionaire, now has to get a real job. And <laughs> it's a, it's, as you can tell, it's a real, it's real strong on plot. But the thing is, is that for me is while the, the movie does kind of trip itself, trip over its own foot, uh, and fall over on itself when it tries to extend the gags, the one thing that's there, and I think really it just rests on the laurels of Dudley Moore as a whole, is that the character of Arthur still shines through. Even though the writing and the story are really pretty lame, Dudley Moore is awesome. And you know what? Liza Minnelli is really good, too. And while she's not really the focus uh, focus so much, um, you can really see that the chemistry that they had off screen bled into the into the roles that they had and i think that the movie is definitely weak i i will not sit here and say it's just this the most amazing of films but it is not as bad as all that I, and again the story is kind of goofy and the writing isn't good but these characters that were so strong and so amazing from the first movie where you did have great writing um just shine through and it carries the day right it wins the day for the film and i absolutely enjoy this movie thoroughly thoroughly enjoy this movie i if you've seen arthur um please give this one a shot despite what you've heard and if you've never seen arthur um well clearly hold off on this movie and go watch arthur but for me my pick this week or for this particular time on I'm the only one who liked it, is 1988's Arthur II on the Rocks. What do you got there, Tim? Because Shane Black wrote and directed one of the better movies I have seen this year, actually the past two years, that we will be reviewing on this show momentarily, I decided to pick one of my all-time favorite action movies, let alone all-time favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies to talk about, which was written by Shane Black, and that movie is indeed... 1993's Last Action Hero, directed by John McTiernan. This movie is fucking fun. If you're a guy, if you love movies and action movies and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you have not seen this movie, I say guy. I, I apologize. Uh, women as well, girls, boys, anybody. If you are a fan of movies, cinema, action, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, go and see... Unless it's playing at a movie theater, but go out and rent Last Action Hero or buy it. It's even worth that. It's so much fun. It's a great movie. Uh, it tells the story of this young boy named Danny, who is played by Austin O'Brien, who loves movies. And the particular movie or the particular genre that he loves the most is action. And his favorite action star is Jack Slater, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he never misses any Jack Slater movie. He, he sees them multiple times. In fact, he skips school to go see these Jack Slater movies. Uh, partly because he doesn't like school and partly because he lives in a single-family house 
household. He's being raised by his mom, who works, I think, at a diner or something like that as a waitress. So he's a little bit rebellious, and his rebellious tendencies take him to the movie theater. And he becomes friends with a movie theater owner named Nick, who is played by Robert Prusky. And he acquires the brand new Jack Slater movie. I think it's like Jack Slater 7 or something like that. And basically tells the kid, you want to come and see Jack Slater 7 before anybody else can? And of course, like any boy, hell yeah, the idea of seeing a movie the night before, two hours before anybody else, just the idea of being one of the first to see it is... An amazing feeling. And of course, this kid says yes. And there's something kind of magical and mystical about this Nick character who owns this really old and run-down movie theater. So he comes in and the boy walks in. He's like, oh, wait, don't forget your movie ticket, though. You need your movie ticket. So he gives him a movie ticket. He, he, uh, he tears it. And there's little fairy dust in it. So you find out it's a magical movie ticket. So as young Nick is... Or not young Nick... Uh, but as young Danny is sitting there with his popcorn, watching the opening action scene of the Jack Slater movie, getting wrapped up in the car chase, suddenly a grenade, a bomb from within the movie gets thrown and it, and it comes out of the screen and lands right next to Danny. And before he knows it, he is swept into the movie alongside Jack Slater, solving a mystery and being wrapped up in all these great, fun, over-the-top, bitchin' action sequences. It's such a fun movie, and I, I don't understand why it could have a 37% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Where the critics' consensus is, Last Action Hero has most of the right ingredients for a big-budget action spoof, but its scattershot tone and uneven structure only add up to a confused, chaotic mess. And I think the big issue is, is that this movie, to me, wasn't necessarily a spoof. I think it was an ode to action movies. It was an ode to the love of movies in general, I think. It's fun, it's over-the-top, it's campy, but all in the right places. And I cannot recommend this anymore again to movie fan, to action fans out there. It has a killer rock and roll soundtrack, all ACDCs in there. It's just fun. It hits all the right notes and all the right beats. Though it's not perfect, it's just a hell of a time. Arnold's great, too. Total charisma, especially whenever Arnold is brought into the real world and he has to face civilians calling him Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because remember, Jack Slater thinks he is Jack Slater. He doesn't know anything about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And in the Arnold in the movie, Jack Slater movie, when the kid goes in the movie, uh, he looks at he's trying to convince him like you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they, he takes him to a local blockbuster. And he's trying to show him all these Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, but a great little gag, I thought. Instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, playing his characters, like the Terminator, it's being played by Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> kind of sort of Arnold's rival in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was just a nice little, nice little gimmick or gag right there. So again, Last Action Hero, you gotta go see it. It made, on a $85 million production budget, it did make $50 million domestically and $87 million in the foreign box office. So it kinda sorta made its money back if you take the worldwide box office into consideration. So, yeah, that's the reason why I'm the only one who likes 
Last Action Hero. Very cool. All right. Well, that concludes our I'm the Only One Who Liked It. And next week, we're going to be doing a three squared. And we're going to be talking about our picks for the most ripped off movie posters. All right. So uh, think iconic movie posters and then think about films where it's like, man, this movie poster looks familiar. And it's probably because they ripped off said movie posters. So we're going to talk about some picks in the most ripped off movie poster department for our three squared next week. And this brings us to the movies, does it not, sir? Oh, yes. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. This week's movies are New Waterford Girl, Hush from 2016, not from like 2013 or 2001 or 1993, because there's a lot of fucking movies called Hush. Uh, and then, of course, The Nice Guys. Where would you like to start, sir? How about New Waterford Girl? All right, Caper Girl Mel, here's your flick. New Waterford Girl, Canadian drama comedy film released in 1999, directed by Alan Moyle, and stars Leanne Balaban, Nicholas Campbell, Tara Spencer-Name, and Mary Walsh. Also has appearances by folks such as Andrew McCarthy. Uh, let's see here. So, Leanne Balaban, who in- coincidentally had never acted before. She didn't even know that there was a movie being made and was at... um a setter and happened to come across um <laughs> one of the producers and she was like hey you should come and audition so she did and landed the part uh moody potty uh, basically a 15 year old girl very sick of the small town life and is just dying to get away wants to go off to new york and become like a world famous author she is um basically she she is uh encouraged as it were by her english teacher and the english teacher is definitely um inappropriately uh attracted to her as it were and uh she's yeah so basically she's just desperately trying to get away uh, her parents are very ultra-conservative, religious-type folk, and again, she's in a very small town. Enter Lou. Lou is actually from New York, and she is, um, she, she is kind of like trying to figure out a way to fit in, right? Because you would think, you know, oh, wow, this big, cool country, you know, this big, cool city girl comes into the outlandish country. But the thing is, is you're just as much of an outcast because people are looking at you as an object of oddity being from some big place, not that it's just you're so cool. And so she comes in and her only way to attempt to to be normalized is she has this ability to knock people out who are less than faithful. And so these two kind of end up keening off of each other, and one's trying to fit in in the new world, and one is trying to get out into the world that the new girls came from. And you mix that with 
family histrionics and small town life and the quirkiness that comes together when all of those things happen. And you have this movie. Um, I, having lived in, uh, some fairly small towns, not, you know, say anything less than 5,000 people, but still some small towns and, and understood and also, uh, in, in growing up in different small, very small private schools and stuff, um, I can certainly understand the ideas that happen when you have those embarrassing parents and you have those social circles that are so small that everything matters. And for me, I really felt that this movie resonated. Now, um, while I am definitely not Canadian by any stretch of imagination, and so maybe could not culturally get a, get some of the context of the things that were going on in that regard, I still felt that I kind of shared a, a, a kind of like a kindred moment or two, uh, especially with Mooney, who's just so desperate to get out and start her own life, and not that, and not out of hatred or disgust but just when you know in your heart that what you want for your life is not where you are and so i could identify with that um and i felt for and of course i really think that's kind of interesting (laughs) the the route she takes to achieve her dreams but whatever uh we're not here to judge i like this movie i like it a lot um now, on the downside, though, and I think maybe it's also because this is a movie from 1999, I would have to say that in a lot of ways it feels dated, and I think it's just because of the time period there were certain fashions, certain trends, certain things that the way, and, and it just, not that it hasn't aged well, um, but just that it's it's just obviously dated, and but but that's not to say that the acting hasn't aged well or anything like that. It's just that the situational side of it, you know, is in certain aspects kind of cliched. And I really felt that the culmination of the film could have been gotten to in a slightly less ridiculous way. But I, I mean, that's where the comedy part of it comes in, right? All in all, I give this movie a 4.25 out of 5. Uh it's definitely worthy of the praise that it's gotten. And while it's not a perfect film, um, I, I mean, I feel like I got it for the most part. So 4.25 out of five. Thank you so very much for this pick from my end, Mel. Um, yeah, we hope to hear from you again. (laughs) What do you got, Tim? I didn't like the movie quite as much as Matt, but I did like it. It's a it's a three-star movie for me. I like the pacing of the movie, especially. It's directed by Alan Moyle, who who has made some other really popular movies that are musically driven. Uh, I say musically, dri- or soundtrack driven, I should say. Because uh, this one does have a pretty heavy uh, 70s rock soundtrack to it. He did Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater, which is about a, a music pirate and a radio pirate. And he did Empire Records about five years before he did New Waterford Girl. You know, I agree with Matt in saying that it does feel dated. 
And to me, that's it really hurts the movie, especially if you compare it to a movie like Empire Records, which came out by, you know, in 95. New Waterford Girl came out in 2000. But I think most importantly, though, other than the movie feeling a little bit dated, is that a number of things, character-wise, are brushed over. And it feels like there weren't really many consequences with some of the stuff that happened. And I think I really felt that during the build-up, or, wh- or what, it, what the movie kind of built up to. It's like you have this great moment of what the character is going to do, or like what gets the character from point A to point B, which is out of New Waterford or which is out of Canada. But in doing so, a lot of things happen. And they just kind of happen. And they're just I just felt like I needed a little bit more out of it. Again, whether it be story-wise or character-wise, a lot of it just kind of felt a little brushed over. Now, if I saw this movie in, two, in 2000, would I, would I have liked it more? Probably so. I mean, I've seen other movies like this done a little bit better, but it could just it could be just because there there were there was more for me to latch onto, more for me to associate my life with or my experiences with because I've never really grew up in a small town. I mean, Spring, Texas, Tomball, Texas, the Spring Tomball, Texas area really isn't a small town, especially when you compare it to what this girl has to put up with. So I, I think that having that association is a big thing. And if you don't have it and, and you notice other stuff like this, it's easy for you to start kind of like knocking off some points, but it's still a good movie, and I would recommend it to those of you who like these not-so-coming-of-age tales, because it's not really a coming-of-age tale. It's still good, though. So, three out of five on my end. Sweet! All right, where do you want to go from here, sir? Hush! All right, Hush, 2016 psychological horror thriller film. Uh, this is directed by Mike Flanagan and stars John Gallagher Jr., Michael Trucco, and Kate uh, Siegel. Now, what we have here is a young lady who is deaf. And uh, not through her whole life. She lost her hearing, the bacterial meningitis or something like that when she was like a, a teenager. Anyway, um, she lives in a cabin, relatively uh, isolated, and makes a living by writing books. And so um, her friend is over at uh, her house and is on her way home and ends up uh, being threatened or accosted or something like that, right? And so she runs back to her, she runs back to the author girl's house, right? The deaf girl's house. And she gets killed, like, right on the doorstep. But poor deaf girl can't hear, right? And thus begins this entire torment of this poor young lady who is, all she's trying to do is survive. Um, This film is probably one of the like in terms of true horror i i or at least let me let me rephrase that not horror because it's not one of those scary monster demon you know kind of ghosty flicks like parent not paranormal activity but like sinister stuff like that right this one is definitely hardcore psycho psycho killer thriller kind of movie right slasher feel and this is one of the best that I've seen in probably the past two or three or four years that I can think of uh, in terms of new films that have come out. And I would give this movie a five, except for one thing. 
Now, the movie's only 81 minutes long, and I don't fault it for being 81 minutes because the type of movie that it is, um, you can't, it just, I mean, there's not a whole lot of places for it to go. And so that's why the movie's not a five-star movie for me because there are so few ways to drag this out and not make it feel like it's being dragged out that eventually it falls into ridiculous trope territory. I get that this girl is deaf, okay? But for all intents and purposes, we have to assume that for better or worse, she's got to know the lay of the land better than the killer. And yet, where does she go? Upstairs. Always fucking upstairs. If there was one thing that Scream did when it redefined everything, is it gave you the goddamn rules of horror. Okay? So, maybe, maybe, just maybe, not 25 years later, just maybe we don't need to read, you know, we don't need to fall back into that. And we do, and so it's things like that, right? There are so many cool things that this, that this killer does, and there are so many really cool throwbacks and modernized throwbacks to other great franchises and other great horror movies. But at the same time, you have to have a leg of your own to stand on. And while it does so many cool things, including some original stuff well, it just consistently falls into trope territory. And I will applaud, though, by the time it gets past the trope shit, um, it does give a satisfying conclusion. You come to the, um, just at, just at the tail end of the third act, right in the beginning of the fourth act, where everything is finally coming to a head, and you're finally gonna see whether or not shit goes down the way you hope it does, or the way you expect it does, or if you just think it's gonna be blown away. And, I'm not gonna tell you how it ends. You should watch the movie. But, it it manages to salvage those things and leave trope territory for its conclusion. Um, and at 81 minutes, again, it's really hard, but you know what? I think it would have been okay if it had been 70 minutes. Um, now, that's a really short movie, but considering feature length is technically 55 minutes, eh, you're still in good territory as far as I'm concerned. Um, I just think it was... I, I just think that... Uh, Aside from the tropiness, this movie is outstanding, and it's a really cool concept, and there are definitely really cool throwbacks to other neat horror franchises and thriller movies. Um, just too much tropiness. So four stars out of five. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got? I can't speak tonight, so I'm going to try to keep the remaining two reviews as short as possible. I agree for the most part with Matt. This is a stellar movie and you I, I don't think anybody has really seen a movie like this in quite some time I really liked how the movie progressed it, it, it's great when you see the heroine or when you see the person in danger actually fucking acting smartly <laughs> you know and you actually kind of like have faith in her that she will make it or 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 have faith in her and just worry that she's not going to make it because just all these things kind of happen to her that feel real and she's going through I don't want to say she's not going into the through the motions as if recycled motions or anything like that but she's going through the, the motions based on what happened to her 
you know, and it, and it just kind of felt real, and it wasn't just her acting, but it was how the movie was shot, and the transitions, and the cuts, it was phenomenal, and I think that was great, and I would have given this movie a 4.5, 4.75, if it wasn't for some of the tropiness, or even a few other things, but the main reason why I didn't give it such a high rating, why I am also going to land on four stars, is because... They revealed the bad guy's face way too fucking early in the movie, and I didn't find him much of a threat once I saw what he looked like. And to me, that's a big thing. He had a mask that was creepy. You know, you don't know anything about the guy. That's fine. But it was the mask was creepy, and it adds that terror of you don't know who you're facing. And that's what made Scream scary, is because you didn't know who you were facing until the very end. Once you see this guy's face, like maybe 25 minutes into the movie, I don't know, he just takes off his mask. Yeah, when you're looking at it in real life, maybe that what led him to do that would be justified. But if you wanted the movie to be scary and not just a good thriller, leave the mask on, because a better opportunity rose when possibly one other character arrives at the scene and the bad guy has to pretend to be a good guy, that would have been a great, a, a better moment to reveal his face. Because whenever you see his face, think at, you know when it's just her and the or when it's just him and the uh, and the girl in trouble, you think the reveal of his face is going to be this impactful sight like it's going to be this lasting sight of something frightening but really he looks like a hipster (laughs) he looks like a guy that should be drinking a bud light down at the local tavern or something like that you know so nothing too threatening and you really don't have the idea that the guy was a complete psychopath and which is totally fine but it just him revealing himself so really just wasn't justified by the filmmaking. So, four out of five. I couldn't recommend this movie anymore, however, so do check out Hush. Woo! All right, well, that leaves us with The Nice Guys. 2016 neo noir mystery buddy comedy film. You didn't think that was a thing, did you? But it is, apparently. Directed by Shane Black and stars Russell Crowe, Ryan Gosling, and Guri Rice, Matt Bomber, Margaret Qualley, Keith David, and Kim Basinger. This movie takes place in 1977 L.A. when a young boy uh, <laughs> experiences a car crash right through his damn house. Uh, and it's coincidental that he's looking at a girly mag that he's stolen from his dad's uh, under his dad's bed. Misty Mountains. Yes, Misty Mountains. The girl <laughs> in the mag that he's looking at the centerfold is the girl that's in the car wreck. And so, uh, thus begins a very weird circumstantial, uh, circumstance where we have Ryan Gosling's character, uh, who plays private detective Holland March and, uh, Russell Crowe's character of Jackson Healy, who is basically like a, an enforcer as they are inadvertently thrust together despite a very auspicious <laughs> and not in a good way auspicious, but still very something very pointed. Uh, first meeting. And they have to go um, track down a girl who was in a, who, who apparently was in a movie with this Misty Mountains. Uh, and thus the caper is born. 
Well, this movie was very nearly a five-star movie for me as well. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, there are three things that brought this movie down for me. One, Kim Basinger. I understand why she was, I understand why she was there. Um, I get that she was, um, and I understand what her role in the film is meant to be. I understand that, uh, she didn't overact and I understand that she didn't do anything that wasn't required from the writing and the way that this character is supposed to be portrayed. Because again, this is 1977, right? And a lot of the politics of the day and a lot of the way that things were treated back then are done unintentionally in a comic uh, used as a comic backdrop to progress the plot. The thing is, though, is that despite those things, she just comes off as such low caliber in terms of her performance that it's a smaller role, but it's really kind of pivotal. And I just, I couldn't take her seriously. And so, oh my God, really? Are you kidding me? The second thing that that did this, that, that, you know, took away from this film for me was the girl, Anguri Rice. Now, she plays Ryan Gosling's daughter. And again, we're dealing with 1977, and so things were dealt with differently back then. Also, a lot of the throwback feel to this film is in the characterizations, not necessarily of the actors that they portray, but the style of the characterization that would have been represented back in that time period. And if anybody remembers the name Jodie Foster, you can go all the way back, even prior to Taxi Driver and post-Taxi Driver, depending on how you want to look at it, and see... um all of the stuff that she did with like Disney and everything like that. And that kind of an attitude and way to carry oneself is really embodied pretty well in Angry Rice playing Holly March. Um, the problem with that, as much as I could appreciate that style of characterization and that throwback, was that they use her as kind of like a third partner right the kind of like the supporting partner almost like the secretary would be at a at a, at a private eyes office and they should have done that instead because while you can certainly uh, understand that sure you know precocious kid is going to behave differently based on the way she's being raised in this particular situation also it's the 70s right people didn't um people weren't as as concerned about bad things happening just in random as the, you know even for going all that it's just this particular character's dynamic and situation becomes thoroughly unbelievable uh and the last thing that is done is that um, is honestly Ryan Gosling's makeup. I know it's a weird thing to pick on. It's the, it's the, but Russell, like everybody else looks great. Ryan Gosling consistently looks like he's wearing makeup the whole fucking movie. I don't understand what it is, but it constantly broke my immersion and it bothered me the whole time. So those three things were taking off one quarter star each. We're left with 4.25. 
This movie really is fantastic on the whole. Um, I thought that the plot was thoroughly overall was uh, just complex enough so that uh, you would enjoy watching it unfold. However, just predictable enough because of the subject matter and the neo-noir style of the 70s that was being portrayed that you could still, if you're not sitting there watching it just to watch it, you could still follow along and play along and pick it up as you went. Um, the mix of characterizations is really good. The cinematography is great. And also, oh dear God, look and listen to everything. There are so many jokes that are not uttered by the principal cast that if you are looking and listening, there's billboards in the background. There's one really good one towards the end of the film that I please hope you see. Um, there's lots of stuff like, okay, in one, in, in the girl's room, in Holly's room, there's like this cross stitch thing of, of some butterflies and stuff. My sister literally had that when I was a kid. I had one that was like that, that was a choo choo train. I mean, you've got all this cool stuff that is just complete like nostalgia overload that you will be able to see. And then so many funny lines. There is a line delivered by a hooker. And she says, uh, just in passing, like they're walking by these hookers. So the hookers are walking by Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe as they go by. And you just hear the hookers say, I told him I'm fine with it. Just don't eat asparagus first. And I was like, holy shit, they made a golden showers joke. Holy fuck, that just happened. And it happens all throughout the movie. All throughout the movie. So, 4.25 out of 5. Bring us home, Tim. And then we can go to bed. <laughs> not I mean, not, not together. necessarily together, but we can go to bed. That'll happen in a week and a half when I'm there next to you, sitting on your lap. Woo. And sitting next to you some somehow. <laughs> so, The Nice Guys is a great movie. That is best left to be watched without talking about it in risk of spoiling it. It's funny, but it's not start to finish hysterical like the trailers and and other uh, reviewers are making it out to be. It's just a good movie. Just because there's funny bits in it doesn't mean it's laugh out loud hysterical from beginning to end. Overall, it's a very fun experience. There are some character inconsistencies in underwhelming moments. Yes, that is kind of my biggest concern of this movie. But there's a great throwback feel and excellent presentation of 70s L.A., even though it actually was not shot in L.A., believe it or not. In the movie, you have all of these great cut shots to Hollywood in the 70s that, granted, keep in mind, I live in L.A., and so I'm able to pick out all the buildings that they're showing, and it's seamlessly edited, I guess with CGI or something, that it it looks like they just went out and shot it right now, and that is not at all what that street looks like, or that is not at all what that building looks like. It's amazing how they did it, and I'm pretty sure it's CGI or or something. It's it's well, it's got to be CGI. But what got me, I was waiting to see where it was shot at at the end, Holly, you know, whatever Hollywood studio or whatever. It was all shot in Georgia, believe it or not. Yes, one of the most Hollywood LA feeling movies of the year was shot in Georgia, and I, I just I thought that was kind of funny, and that kind of took away from the movie a little bit. I don't know if that's necessarily fair to say or not, but it really did. I again, I think this is a 
a great movie, but I too felt there were character inconsistencies and underwhelming moments. The girl didn't bother me all too much, especially when I warmed up to her a little bit. I'm going to buy this when it comes out, and I, and I think it, it'll be one of those movies where when you watch it, if you watch it while drinking, I was stark sober when I saw it, and I still thoroughly enjoyed it, but I could see myself drinking some margaritas. I left this movie craving a margarita. In fact, we went to a Mexican restaurant and drank mar- margaritas and ate nachos, an ode to Russell Crowe's character in the movie. So I could only imagine watching this drinking a margarita or a Paloma and enjoying the movie that much more. But as of right now, The Nice Guys, in my book, 4.5 out of 5, go see it. It's a lot of fun. Right on, right on. Okay, well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies, it's just a two-movie week, folks. Uh, X-Men Apocalypse and Tale of Tales, both in the theaters. So... Without further ado, I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to you by music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Kim Basinger, I get to say this. You have to be a little unreal to be in this business. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>